Jodcasts with ambition. With Megan Argo, George Bendo, Ian Harrison, Ian Morrison, Josie Peters, Mark Berber, and Anna Stacy. The Jodcast, November 2014 edition. Welcome to a Jotcast. With me today is Josie and Hannah. Hello, Hi. George. Hannah's new to the Jotcast. Uh, Hannah, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, I'm from Manchester, and I did my uh, undergraduate here, and I'm here back as a postgraduate. I'm working on gravitational lensing. Oh, who are you working with? Uh, Neil Jackson. Oh, okay. Uh, on with the show. In the show this time, Mark interviews Professor Jim Drake. Ian Morrison takes a look at what's happening in the November night sky, and we bring you some astronomical odds and ends. But first, before all of that, here's Ian Harrison with this month's news. In the news this month, simulated black holes and smelly comets. Astronomers received help from an unexpected source this month, as it was revealed that the creation of visual effects for a new science fiction film has led to new insights into the physics of black holes. Interstellar, the new film from director Christopher Nolan, other sci-fi adventure films are of course available, has held significant attention amongst astronomers since the announcement that the highly regarded theorist Kip Thorne was collaborating with Nolan on the film, seeking to preserve as high a level of scientific accuracy as possible. And, it appears that the project has exceeded expectations, actually leading to new discoveries Thorne expects to be able to publish in research papers. Part of the film, Kip worked with the visual effects team to attempt to make an accurate visualisation of a spinning black hole, an object used as a plot device central to the film's story. Black holes themselves are, of course, by definition invisible, but they can be observed via two key effects. The first, a consequence of Einstein's theory of general relativity, is gravitational lensing, bending of light rays caused by the curving of space-time by massive objects. This lensing effect has many uses, with which regular Jodcast listeners are probably familiar, and in the case of ultramassive, ultra-dense black holes, is capable of distorting images of background stars and galaxies into spectacular arcs and rings. In addition, when a black hole feeds on external matter, be it gas, cosmic dust, or an unlucky nearby star, this matter is expected to form an accretion disk around the black hole. In these accretion disks, matter particles rub up against each other and become increasingly hot and dense, emitting light and making accretion disks one of the most luminous types of object in the universe. Thorne and the visual effects team set out to calculate how such an accretion disk would appear to an observer within viewing distance of the black hole. Not a trivial task, given the extreme mass densities involved. Fortunately, Kip Thorne is preeminent in matters of general relativity, with a 50-year career and significant cult following within the field. Thorne worked out the form of Einstein's equations, describing the path taken by light rays around the highly spinning black hole required by the film's plot, and gave the resulting equations to the visual effects team to code up onto their computers. This required the creation of a whole new suite of visual rendering software, as previous codes relied on the assumption, safe outside extreme astrophysical environments, that light rays travelled in straight lines. The team then turned loose their significant computing power on Thorne's equations, generating nearly 800 terabytes, that's 800,000 gigabytes of data, with some individual frames of animation typically displayed on screen for only about 1 24th of a second, taking up to 100 hours to produce. The result is something very spectacular. In addition to the light coming directly from the accretion disk in one plane around the black hole, light is also bent around the black hole, circling it four or five times before escaping to the virtual camera. This gives a beautiful visual effect with rainbows of fire appearing perpendicular to the original accretion disk and complex fingerprint-like patterns at the very edge of the dark shadow created by the black hole itself. Both Thorne and director Christopher Nolan are understandably excited about this, having produced something both visually arresting and scientifically accurate. 
In addition to the film, it is expected that the work will produce technical scientific papers relating both to the discoveries about black hole physics and the new computing techniques which were required to produce the animation. The news met with highly positive reactions amongst prominent physicists on social media, although many also offered the caveat that much of the broad sense of the physics had already been worked out, particularly in the pioneering works by Jean-Pierre Luminet and J.A. Mark in the 1970s and 1990s. These works also pointed out extra effects not actually present in the simulations for the film, with relativistic Doppler effects causing the accretion disk to appear brighter on one side than the other. Luminet is in contact with Kip Thorne, however, and suitably reassured that such effects will be considered and due credit given when the technical papers are written up for publication. In other news, the success of the Rosetta satellite's mission to comet 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko continued with the startling revelation of the comet's odour. Yes, that's right, it's odour. As it turns out, the comet smells of cat's urine, rotten eggs, and bitter almonds. Using its Rosina instrument, which stands for Rosetta Orbiter Spectrometer for Ion and Neutral Analysis, the satellite collected and analysed molecules emanating from the comet's surface and found a mixture of hydrogen sulphide, ammonia, and hydrogen cyanide, which combined to give a distinct and not exactly pleasant whiff. Astronomers are interested in detecting such complex molecules on comets as they provide a frozen record of their abundance in the early solar system, when planets were still being formed. Being able to view this record will potentially provide us with clues as how compounds crucial to life came to exist here on Earth. The ability to sniff the comet so soon was a surprise, however, with Rosetta scientists expecting to have to wait for the comet to warm up in the sun before the smell became powerful enough to detect, like a wet dog maturing next to a radiator. We shouldn't worry about 67P stinking out the solar system, though, with the molecules not present in large enough quantities to be smelt by a human being on the comet's surface. Catherine Altweg of the University of Bern of Switzerland pointed out that, even stood on the surface, you would probably need a good dog to smell it. Thanks for that, Ian. Now, Mark interviews Professor Jim Drake about Voyager 1 crossing the heliopause. Today I'm interviewing Professor Jim Drake, who works at the University of Maryland and is currently on sabbatical at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome yes. to the Jogcast. Thank you. Pleasure um, to be here. So you're giving a seminar today and it's uh, on, a, on a very interesting topic, which is uh, the Voyager spacecraft and, and where it is now in the solar system. So to start with, um, can you tell us about what uh, the Voyagers 1 and 2 are and where they are at the moment? Okay, so the Voyager spacecraft are um, heading away from the sun at around 20 kilometers per second. The Voyager 1 is at, uh, in the northern latitudes, about 35 degrees north. I'm not going to be able to tell you off the top of my head the exact distance, but it's um, around um, 120 to 130 AU, and AU is the distance from the sun to the, to the Earth. So it's several times further than Neptune, even from the Sun. Oh yeah, it's quite a bit further than the Neptune from the Sun. Well, in fact, uh, Voyager two did the flyby of Neptune in 1989, so it's very well uh, beyond Neptune at this yeah, point. Yes, so it's way beyond all the planets now. I guess that's how we remember the Voyager probes as being the ones, or at least as you said, Voyager two that took uh, some of the great pictures of the outer planets of the solar system. Um, if you listen to Ed Stone give a talk on the entire history of the Voyagers and their discoveries, it's very remarkable. You know, you look at the all these measurements of volcanic activity on some of the various moons, and and none of that was known before Voyager went out there. So it's the history of discovery is remarkable. So the wonderful thing about Voyagers one and two now is that they are still transmitting data back to Earth and telling us. Uh, 
a little bit about their environment. And that's really what you were telling us about today. So um, can you give us a picture of what it was that you're actually, that you're actually studying? Okay. The first thing I want to say is that the Voyagers, so the, the sun has um, a realm of influence in which the particles, plasma particles from the sun are shooting out from the sun. There's a certain spatial domain in which those particles um, are, are around. And then there's a boundary. And beyond that boundary, then, um, you don't find any particles from the sun. And all those particles on the outside of that boundary are from the interstellar medium. Now, one of the really lucky things about Voyager is that the so-called nose of the heliosphere, which is the domain of the sun, is out where the where the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft are. And that's just pure luck because when the Voyagers were launched in the 1970s, we had no idea about uh, how the the uh, plasma from the interstellar medium was flowing and the nose of the heliosphere is um, is right where the the flow from the interstellar medium is coming in and hitting the heliosphere and it just so happens by luck that um, both of the voyagers are pointed out pretty much in the direction so we were very lucky and and uh, so what we're trying to do is figure out where that boundary is between the domain of the sun and the domain of the interstellar medium and try to try to look at uh, what happens to the energetic particles for example produced in the heliosphere when they cross that boundary and what happens to the galactic cosmic rays which are in the interstellar medium when we cross, cross that boundary um, and, and, in fact, have the first direct measurements of the full galactic cosmic ray spectrum um, outside the heliosphere, which has never been measured before and is now being measured for the first time. So to go to a couple of the different bits of terminology there, our solar system then is, is moving through this, this interstellar medium, all the particles and the gas between the stars, and, and we're moving through it at a certain velocity and that's why the helio sheath has a has a sort of teardrop shape rather than just being a sphere right so the so the heliosphere has a teardrop shape with a nose um, and so the nose point is the is the distance where this boundary is closest to the sun so whether whether you say the sun is moving through the interstellar medium or the interstellar medium is moving uh, in towards the sun it really doesn't matter the one thing we know is that the local interstellar medium is coming at us at around 20 kilometers per second. And it's, as you explained in the talk, you called it a miracle that the voyagers happened to be heading right towards the nose. And so they didn't have to travel for many, many decades. Well, right. just, just four decades to get yeah. through it. Yeah, so the, the, the heliopause, which is this boundary that we're talking about, is much closer to the sun on the nose if the voyagers were going towards the tail, the backside of the um, heliosphere, then the voyagers would never intersect that boundary during their lifetime. The Voyager spacecraft instruments are powered by a radioactive decay process, and the power from that device is going down with time, 
And the so the instruments on the spacecraft will only be uh, able to be run uh, perhaps 2024 or 2025. At that point, in fact, slightly before that point, they're going to be gradually shutting down the instruments to try to save power. And then by by that time, all the instruments will be turned off, and that'll be it. And the Voyager won't be taking any more data. But you know, so if we if the Voyagers had been going towards the 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 tail of the uh, of the heliosphere, there's um, we never would have been able to see this boundary. So, and it was pure luck, um, just by chance, that they happen to be pointing right towards the nose of the heliosphere. So somebody's got good luck on that program. <laughs> and you mentioned um, cosmic rays, and you also mentioned the domain of the sun. So that gives a couple of clues as to what voyages the voyages actually measure. So, what instruments do you have access to the data from? Um, well, personally, I don't have access to it, although I suppose anybody in principle could log on to the Voyager website and sort of look at what's going on. But anyhow, the Voyagers are measuring the magnetic field directions. The, they have a bunch of energetic particle instruments that can measure different ranges of, uh, of energy of particles and different species. And then they, uh, Voyager 1 used to have an instrument to measure the local plasma density. That's the number of charged particles per unit volume. But that uh, broke quite a long time ago. And Voyager 2 still has a, uh, a plasma, plasma instrument which can measure the density, which is good. Um, and, and the reason this is an important issue is because one of the defining signatures of the heliopause is that the plasma density should jump by about a factor of 30 as you cross the heliopause. And so um, with Voyager 1, when, we, when, when we're uh, trying to decide did we or didn't we cross the heliopause, we did not have that direct density measurement. And that was a complicating factor in terms of deciding have we or have we not uh, crossed outside the heliosphere. What Voyager 1 does have is an instrument that measures waves. Uh, fortunately, there's a particular type of wave called a plasma wave whose frequency is controlled by the plasma density alone. And so if we measure waves of a certain frequency, then we can immediately tell, aha, now we know the density. So I guess I haven't discussed uh, the whole, all of these issues now about whether Voyagers across the heliopause. Should we start talking about that now? Yeah, I guess we should, because listeners might remember that there's been more than one uh, news story at different times saying, oh, Voyager 1 has just left the solar system, which is a slightly glib way of putting it, or Voyager 1 has crossed the heliopause. Um, and, and you're explaining today that the data, in some ways, make it slightly less of a simple picture than, than we might have thought before. So there seem to be the key things of the... Um, the plasma density and the, the number of these cosmic rays, these particles that are arriving, and also the magnetic field. So what, what did those data tell you? Okay, so let me let me go through what Voyager measured and in, in the and what's been confusing about whether Voyager has crossed the heliopause. So um, the Voyager is measuring energetic particles, in particular both electrons and uh, various ion species. And there are certain um, energetic ions that are produced in the heliosphere. And so you can imagine then if we go from the heliosphere to outside, we, we should be seeing a, a drop in the intensity of those particles. In particular, 
There's a certain group of particles known as anomalous cosmic rays, which have um, energies of 10 to 100 million electron volts per nucleon. So they're very energetic compared they're very to any energetic particles. particle that you might normally find sort of flying around a room or something. Right. So these are very energetic particles. Um, and we know that those anomalous cosmic rays are produced in the heliosphere for reasons which I'm not going to go into right now. But those, So those are a, a very good signature. So if you see a drop in those particles then you're pretty sure that you've, uh, you've, got, you've gone outside the, the heliosphere. Um, in the meantime, there's other classes of particles like the particles, the so-called galactic cosmic rays, which are um, higher energy. And Voyager also measures um, those, and I believe they measure up to 200 MeV per nucleon or something like that. I'm not sure of the exact number. But um, if you leave the, if you cross the heliopause, what you expect to see is an abrupt increase in the numbers of those galactic cosmic rays. And okay, so the story then is, uh, what what did Voyager see um, back in 2012? What Voyager saw was a series of dropouts in the anomalous cosmic rays. So what happened was um, they were measuring anomalous cosmic rays at some intensity. Suddenly there was a sharp drop, and that lasted for a few days, and then the number density rose back up. And then, uh, the, so it stayed at some intensity level, and then it dropped out again. And then it came back up again. And finally, um, it dropped out, and basically all of the particles seen uh, that are produced in the heliosphere uh, basically went to essentially zero. And so when the Voyager team first started looking at data, I'm sure everybody thought, without any question, that Voyager had left the heliosphere. Um, because, I mean, that's the signature. You know, you've just suddenly stopped measuring all of the particles which you're very sure are produced within the heliosphere. And, and at the same time, meanwhile, by the way, the, as the anomalous cosmic rays which are produced in the heliosphere drop out, at the same time, the galactic cosmic ray intensity jumped up, uh -huh. and so that's a t that's telling you yes, we just went into the interstellar medium, and so now we're seeing more galactic cosmic rays, and that's because the magnetic field around the inside the heliosphere acts as a barrier, and and it it sort of uh, helps uh, keep out the galactic cosmic rays, and so that all looked perfect. You know, the Voyager had left the the um, the heliosphere. There's some confusion. So, for example, I said there were several dropouts. Why were there several dropouts? That remained to be answered. But still, the idea that we had left the heliosphere seemed pretty clear. Okay, and then then the controversy, and then the real questions start started arising because the direction of the solar magnetic field is in the east-west direction. It's so-called azimuthal direction in the heliosphere. So it's sort of going towards and away from the equator of the... No, sun. no, it's no. pointing, it's staying, it's, it's in, in the equatorial direction. So it's, if you look at the equatorial plane, the, the uh, magnetic field um, from the sun is a spiral that sort of tries to stay in that in that plane. So it's it's going east-west, for example, if you're looking at the whole heliosphere. Okay, so that's the direction of the solar magnetic field, and that's the so-called Parker spiral. 
uh, Eugene Parker is the one who made the prediction for what that magnetic field would look like. But on the other hand, the interstellar medium has no knowledge of the direction of the magnetic field from the sun. And there's a lot of estimates um, for the direction of that uh, interstellar magnetic field based on other observations. Um, even before, so even before the Voyager crossed, or we think crossed into the interstellar medium, people were pretty sure that, uh, that they knew both the magnitude and the direction of the interstellar field. And that interstellar field has an angle of maybe 60 degrees with the with respect to the equatorial plane. So, yes, I'm sorry. I was going to ask, what observations did people use to actually figure out the direction of the interstellar radiation field in our local environment? Which I you mean the interstellar magnetic field, you mean? Yeah, the interstellar yeah. magnetic Yeah, so, okay, let me just say that I'm not the expert on this topic. So there's been, but there's been quite a, a few different measurements. One, one is that I'm most familiar with is that the, there is this thing called the termination shock. The particles coming out from the sun are moving supersonically. That means they're moving faster than the, um, compressible wave speed or the sound speed in the medium. It's supersonic. Um, at some point, that supersonic flow becomes subsonic at what's called the termination shock. It's a shock wave um, from supersonic flow to subsonic flow. The, if, if the sun was totally isolated by itself um, with no interstellar medium giving some direction, then that would be a spherical termination shock. It would be a perfect sphere. And it's, it's within the heliosphere. Yeah, that shock is within the heliosphere. But what they saw when they... So, that, you know, they, the other thing that was great about the Voyagers is that there's two of them. And there are different latitudes. So the Voyager 1 is in the north, and the Voyager 2 is in the south. And what they measured was um, a difference in the location, the radial distance to the termination shock. And in particular, the um, termination shock is closer uh, in the direction of Voyager 2 than it is for Voyager 1. And for that reason, they could tell that there was, um, that, that helped constrain the direction of the magnetic field. Uh, in the interstellar medium because that said that the magnetic pressure in the southern hemisphere had to be higher than the northern hemisphere and that's why the termination shock was pushed in. Um, so that's one of the measurements I'm most familiar with. But there's a, a lot of other measurements and other people are more qualified than I am to discuss that. But anyhow, that's just an example of a measurement that tells you, uh, that helped tell us tell something about the direction of the magnetic field and its strength. Okay, so where were we? Um, oh yes, so the name. So the bottom line is that the uh, in the in the in the um, heliosphere, the magnetic field is primarily going in the azimuthal direction, which is the east-west direction. And in the stellar in their stellar medium, the magnetic field is um, 0.45 or so uh, nanotesla. And it has a pretty steep angle, 60 degrees, with respect to the um, plane of the solar system, to the, to the equatorial plane of the solar system. Okay, so what does that mean? That means as you cross the heliopause, what everybody thought was that the magnetic field would rotate from east-west to a strong, a much stronger north-south component. And that was one of the key signatures that everybody thought 
was going to signify that we crossed outside the heliosphere. Okay, so we've discussed these dropouts that occurred in the um, anomalous cosmic rays, indicating to many people that Voyager had crossed out. And the surprise was that the magnetic field did not rotate as expected. So the consequence of that was that the Voyager team uh, decided that, well, the Voyager had not crossed into the interstellar medium yet because they didn't see the magnetic field rotation. So there was a series of papers published in Science Magazine, I think it was in June of 2013, uh, saying reporting the dropouts in these um, uh, anomalous cosmic rays and the increase in the galactic cosmic rays, but uh, concluding that there was some channel which was allowing these things to move across the heliopause, but Voyager was still within the heliosphere. Okay, so meanwhile, um, there had been an, uh, an intense modeling effort to do um, computer simulations of the global structure of the heliosphere. And there's a number of groups who were working on this, and so they were basically um, taking the set of, of the so-called magnetohydrodynamic equations and um, looking at the structure of the magnetic field coming out from the sun, the temperature and the density of the plasma coming out from the sun, and looking at how that interacts with the interstellar magnetic field and the interstellar plasma. And these are pretty tough equations to solve. Yeah, it's, it's very massive uh, computer simulations running on thousands of processors on some of the largest uh, computers we have. Professor Marav Ofer and our group at Maryland, including me and, and uh, one of my colleagues, Mark Swistak, um, were collaborating on this, trying to understand this global structure. And Dr. Ofer was finding, you know, as soon as, soon as the, the observations came out of that the magnetic field had not rotated, Professor Ofer started looking in more detail at her simulations and discovered, to our surprise, that in fact the magnetic field that she measured in her simulations also did not sharply rotate at the heliopause. Now in our simulations we knew where the heliopause was because we, we saw the sharp increase in the density that we knew had to happen at the heliopause. So there was no question in the simulation where the heliopause was. And lo and behold, the magnetic field did not sharply rotate. But in fact, it rotated much more gradually over a long distance, going out um, away outside the uh, heliopause, which is exactly what the Voyager was sort of seeing. It was seeing a slow change in the rotation angle, but not a sharp one. In light of that, we decided that there didn't have to be a sharp rotation of the magnetic field at the heliopause, and that wasn't the key signature. The, you know, the drop in the anomalous cosmic rays as seen by the Voyagers, we decided that that might be a more accurate signature of the heliopause. However, there was still an issue, and that was, uh, number one, not only did the magnetic field not rotate sharply, it didn't hardly rotate it at, at all when you cross, when those particles uh, the number of the anomalous cosmic rays dropped. And number two, there were all, all these um, up and down dropouts of these anomalous cosmic rays. How could we explain that? So something's happening. Something's happening. Is, something seems to be happening at the boundary, and can we understand that? So there's this process called magnetic reconnection. 
if you if you have, for example, magnetic fields which are pointing um, in two adjacent reason, regions are pointing in opposite directions, then um, what can happen is that that magnetic field can cross connect, basically. In other words, the magnetic field on one side can cross link with the magnetic field on the other side, and that turns out to release magnetic energy, and and that produces uh, a, a series of magnetic loops, which we call magnetic islands. So what we decided to do was to do a computer simulation about how those magnetic islands might form at the heliopause, um, with the idea that at the heliopause, uh, if you uh, got these magnetic islands, then and those magnetic islands, by the way, would allow plasma to cross that boundary much more easily than if it was a sharp, pristine boundary. And so we so we set out to do a set of simulations of that. Um, our, in our simulation, we found that there were a bunch of these magnetic islands stringing along like beads um, at the heliopause. And those would explain the dropouts and the Right, and so the mixing of the plasma between the interstellar medium and the in the in the heliosheath, which is inside the heliosphere, those the mixing that would occur would explain the dropouts, as seen by um, the Voyager spacecraft. We did those simulations, and then we said, okay, can we look at the Voyager data and see if we can figure out what type of magnetic structure would actually cause those dropouts? And so we constructed a cartoon based on what we knew about our simulations. And um, that cartoon had a set of three magnetic islands, these loops of magnetic field, um, and the mixing across the heliopause produced as those islands uh, could explain then the series of dropouts which the Voyager 1 spacecraft had seen. And based, based on those dropouts and then based on uh, what the direction of the magnetic field was in our simulation. So, yeah, we went back and we looked at the Voyager data and we concluded that on day uh, 209 of 2012, there, uh, that the Voyager spacecraft had crossed the heliopause. And it was actually subsequent to that um, that, we, that the Voyager saw the, um, the dropouts and all these uh, anomalous cosmic rays. Uh -huh. And so we published a paper then in, um, in I think it was August of 2013, saying that. So, you know, we felt we were sticking our necks out on this issue because we were contradicting what the Voyager team members had concluded. And, and let me just say that the interaction between the Voyager team and us has been really good. And, in fact, when I decided that Ed Stone, who's the, who's the head of the Voyager team, was actually giving a, a seminar in Bern, Switzerland, uh, showing the Voyager magnetic data. And I was, you know, we had done these simulations, and Ed was giving this uh, seminar, and it suddenly dawned on me on looking at that data and thinking about what we'd seen in our simulation that Voyager had actually made the crossing. And so that interaction you know, it was the, was the trigger that led us to conclude that the uh, Voyager had actually left the heliosphere. 
So what happened then was that the Voyager spacecraft had measured uh, a, a series of wave events. So re recall what I had said was that the Voyager 1 spacecraft can't measure the density directly, but they do have a wave instrument, um, and if they measure waves at, at, um, with that instrument, they can immediately tell what the local density is because the wave frequency is directly linked to what that density is. And so what happened is in uh, the Voyager 1 spacecraft measured a series of discrete wave events in, 2000, in late 2012, and from the, the frequency of those waves that they measured, they deduced that um, Voyager was in a region of much higher plasma density, um, and therefore they had to be in the uh, interstellar medium. Don, Don Garnett, uh, who is the lead of that uh, wave measurement instrument, um, and some of the other Voyager team members published a paper in, in uh, September of 2013, which uh, in which they n now said that yes, Voyager was in the interstellar medium. Okay, and that'll be why the the, the popular media story kind of resurfaced. Right. So yeah. So I mean, there was a whole series of uh, media interest in this. First, the uh, June uh, Voyager papers, and then. Um, uh, we published our August paper. There was a lot of interest because, you know, after all, here was these these theorists claiming to contradict the uh, Voyager team members, and then um, then in September the new Voyager papers, um, in which the Voyager team concluded that yes, they were outside the the heliosphere. Yeah, we had a whole series of peaks and in media interest on this whole topic, mm -hmm. and of course, you know, I think everybody concluded uh, when the September issue came out, and the Voyager team really, at that point, really had solid evidence that Voyager had crossed out. You know, that was considered a historic moment because because this was our first uh, manned spacecraft to leave the solar system, basically. Yeah. Wow. Or at least to leave the part of the solar system influenced by uh, the sun's solar winds, because right. there's still um, things like the Oort Cloud, which I think extend much further uh, beyond this boundary. And this yeah. may be like a... Yeah, so the, the, historic the historic crossing then is for when the spacecraft first left the um, region in which the, particle, the particles and magnetic fields are produced by the sun. Uh, and that's the heliopause, and, and so this was the Voyager 1 spacecraft leaving the domain dominated by the sun. And as time goes on, assuming we've got 10 years of data to come from the voyages, can we expect to see the direction of the magnetic field slowly changing, right. rotating? Yeah, so at least this is the theoretical prediction that um, Professor Ofer made from her simulations, and that was that there would be a gradual rotation um, in the direction of the of the um, interstellar field um, over the next few years. Now, what the Voyager had been seeing is a start of that gradual rotation. Although, weirdly enough, um, in, the, in the last in the in the last set of data that we've seen, um, it did not seem like that angle was increasing as much as we might have thought. 
but you know there's there's still an, another roughly 10 years of data to come and and so our expectation is that we will continue to see the rotation take in the magnetic field taking place in the meantime there's a lot of other great stuff for example the the voyagers now outside the heliosphere at least we think it is at least some of us think it is not everybody's in agreement by the way and so uh they're measuring directly the galactic uh, cosmic ray spectrum which is of course of great interest um i mean previously we've been measuring the the cosmic the galactic cosmic ray spectrum both um in satellites around the earth um and uh by the voyager spacecraft but um you know the the magnetic field produced by the sun is somewhat of a shield and so not all the galactic cosmic rays could get inside the heliosphere so Voyager is now out presumably outside and is directly measuring the galactic cosmic ray spectrum which is of great interest to many people i think that probably leads on to what was going to be my last question actually which is um yeah if in the fairly far future human beings in a spacecraft were to cross the heliopause i mean would they be in greater danger from these cosmic rays than they are with it within it this is one of those important issues um it's not only if we were leaving the heliosphere the whole issue of um man flight to mars for example um you know the issue of um uh of uh protecting a uh, human being from either the galactic cosmic rays or from a uh a very large flare from the sun which also produces very energetic particles that's an important topic which frankly needs a lot more discussion because um it's very hard to shield um somebody in space from these energetic particles uh, i think we're much further from even thinking about uh having human beings travel outside the heliosphere mm-hmm. so the most immediate question is uh, i think um what's the what's the issue with regard to protecting astronauts in going to mars which um is really a topic which needs a lot of thought these cosmic rays behave more or less like uh uh particles from radioactive decay on earth so it's uh, a severe solar flare or a really heavy dose of uh uh galactic uh cosmic rays could uh affects uh, a human body in much the same way as standing next to a large pile of uh uranium for example mm-hmm. and it kind of makes me think of the phrase uh, known unknowns and unknown unknowns because the more your unknown things at least can be predicted and and quantified in some way the, the better able you are to um to predict what the what the risk really would be to astronauts going to mars otherwise it's hard to even say what what are their chances what are the chances that that something's going to go terribly wrong yeah i think you know we have um fairly good models now for understanding for example uh the the solar wind and its magnetic field um have an influence on the intensity of the galactic cosmic rays and our models for that are pretty decent uh what is less uh what has a lot more uncertainty is 
what's the probability or what's the likelihood of a very large solar flare mm -hmm. producing a coronal mass ejection and the shock wave in front of the coronal mass ejection is a very efficient producer of um, energetic particles and and it's it's that type of thing which has the greatest uncertainty because we just don't have a predictive capability of, of when you'll get a very large flare and associated coronal mass ejection. This is this is a this is a pro, this is a topic which um, people are working hard on, but our our predictive capability. We we uh, we if we see a flare um, and and CME coming from the sun, we 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 have pretty good capability of of uh, figuring out whether it's going to hit the earth and that sort of thing, but we certainly don't have very good ways of predicting when those events will take place. Mm -hmm. And that, that brings a lot of uncertainty to the safety of astronauts trying to go to Mars. So there could be more danger coming from, from the sun than, than yeah, coming I think, from outside. I think the danger, uh, the danger from what's going from the sun is much more uncertain than, um, than, the, ones, than the issue about galactic cosmic rays. That's, that's that's really really fascinating, and also I suppose um, for people studying cosmic rays, then maybe Voyager's measurements will, as you say, they give a pure measurement of the galactic cosmic rays. So maybe it will help us to understand a bit more about where these mysterious particles come from as yep. well. Yeah, right. Excellent. Well, that that's uh, that's that's really it's quite inspiring, really. Voyager, I think. I mean, it's um, set off before I was born. It was after I was born. But not that long after. No, but I did grow up with uh, Voyager uh, discoveries uh, peri periodically appearing on uh, the news. And it's great that, it, that they were made to last and that they're still doing science. Yeah, well, so, I mean, that's, that's one of the great things about these spacecraft. It's actually, you know, the idea that these spacecraft um, out in a very hostile environment with uh, energetic particles all over the place are still functioning. Um, there are some, must have been some extremely good engineers who were doing this. Let me say personally that I was actually born before the Voyagers were launched. I can remember reading about all the discussion of, you know, putting these, I guess, these gold um, uh, plates in there with information about human beings and this and that. Um, For people born after 1990, these gold plates were records. Are called records. Yeah, they're called I get, records. Are they really records? I don't know what they actually I think, are. I, I, I thought, thought they I were thought, CDs. Actually. Oh, okay. Well, I may be wrong about that. Anyway, Maybe. they they were carrying information that. Yeah, they had some songs and things. I think on them, something like that. I I don't know all the details, but but um, they had Chuck Berry. <laughs> did they? But it's going to be a while before they're uh, anywhere anywhere near any other stars, isn't it? <laughs> I'm I'm not sure whether my recollection is right, but I think the Voyager um, is going to come within. I've forgotten whether it's 40 light years or something like that of another star, um, but it's quite a ways off, um, and it's not really very close. <laughs> <laughs> but what, you're going to say something about about the actual discs, and, and it's certainly symbolic to send these things out, especially if the Voyager is silent, in the sense of not sending out radio signals or something like that. Um, the idea that somebody is actually going to find these things and look <laughs> at those discs is um, one could hardly argue the probability is very high for that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, you know, um, as a symbolism for us, 
sending these things out. You know, I think it's it's a valuable thing to try to do. And in fact, try to imagine what it is you would actually send out. You know, you know it's go going back now to when the Voyagers were being designed. What what would you want to put on these discs? What's important to you? I think the uh, just the process of going through that type of thinking. Mm -hmm. And 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 getting people to talk about it and lay it out and do it, I think, is a valuable thing for humanity to do, um, irrespective of whether we actually think somebody's actually going to uh, find this thing. Fantastic. Well, thank you very very much uh, for the uh, colloquium and the interview. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks for that, Mark. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things which we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and the ends. Right, so My Odd and End is about a, a short sci-fi film which has been all over the ESA website and it's basically to promote the Rosetta Comet mission. It's seven minutes long, there's loads of really great special effects. Uh, they've got two actors in it. Uh, so there's sort of a master and apprentice, they're on the moon in the future, and they're talking about sort of trying to create planets and create life, and then they start talking about the past and important steps that humanity made to discovering the origins of life. And so something that they're speaking about is just sort of how far away the Rosetta mission was and what an important step it was into finding where all these sort of origins came from and how the importance of water and how it may have been delivered to Earth in the first place. Um, so, I mean, it was shot in Iceland. The guy who directed it has received like, Oscar nominations. As I said, the special effects in it are really good. Um, and it's really great for trying to promote the mission and get everyone's attention and to make the message and the mission clear to people who may have maybe heard the name of the mission but not really sure what it does. I mean, they're trying really hard with all of their media and the marketing. Like the Twitter accounts they've got are quite good. They have a specific one for Philae, the lander, and then also for Rosetta itself. And they sort of they speak to each other and say, oh, we know you're there yet. Um, and all these cute little things to get everyone interested in the science and understanding what they're doing. Uh, both ESA and NASA tend to do a lot of work in terms of uh, uh, public promotion of their stuff these days, including like social media as well. So it's not surprising that they're doing all of this stuff. What is surprising is that they put together this little science fiction movie, which we saw like uh, the beginning of just before we began re recording. It is a little bit reminiscent of The Last Airbender, uh, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, the, the acting's interesting. <laughs> but, yeah, it gets the message across and the effects are cool. I guess. Yeah, they're so quite it's really, impressive effects. Yeah, um... Yeah, officials are powerful. Because it had been mentioned as well that sort of when there was Mars Curiosity landing in 2012, they also had a short film about sort of the landing and they're like sort of seven minutes of terror. But sort of in the case of Rosetta, when Philae lands, it's going to be like seven hours of like terrifying, nail-biting stuff as it tries to land in the right place and get everything to go right. Uh, I think it's November 12th, isn't it? It's going to land on the space area called Name J, which they haven't yet got a name for, but they're asking the public for a lot of input as to what it should be called. Yeah, for those of you who've played Kerbal Space Program, if you can imagine, like, uh, landing on <laughs> one of the really, really small moons, you know that it's... Well, Kerbal Space Program is the best way to relate to some of these sometimes. <laughs> yeah. 
It's like if you try landing on one of the really small moons in the Kerbal Space Program, your lander will bounce off of that moon very easily if you approach it with any type of velocity at all. Uh, in real life, this is what could happen with the Rosetta lander as well, where if it goes in, uh, drops onto the comet at too high a velocity, it could potentially bounce off the surface. And so it has to go in very slowly to uh, just avoid that. And that's just because the cometary body, uh, like the uh, small moons in the Kerbal Space Program, uh, don't have that much gravity. So um, my odds and ends is um, astronomers have been working on the Frontier Fields Program, a collaboration between Hubble, Spitzer and Chandra telescopes, and have discovered one of the faintest and most distant objects ever seen. Uh, the object is estimated to be over 13 billion light years away, or at a redshift of about 10. This discovery allows astronomers to look back in time to when the universe was 500 million years old and only a small fraction of its current size. It's thought that the object is an early galaxy 500 times smaller than the Milky Way. This galaxy would normally be too faint to see, but due to a phenomenon known as gravitational lensing, the object appears 10 times brighter. Gravitational lensing happens when the distortion of space around a massive object, such as a galaxy, causes light from a background object to be distorted and magnified. In this case, the, the lensing object was a galaxy cluster called Abel 2744. The tiny galaxy offers astronomers insight into a period in the early universe known as the Epoch of Reionization, which is a time in which neutral hydrogen that dominated space condensed to form stars and galaxies, which then radiated and ionized the hydrogen. This was a major stage in the universe's evolution, and astronomers believe that by inves investigating gravitationally lens galaxies such as this one, they can answer many fundamental questions in cosmology such as structure formation and evolution. This is about one five hundredth times the uh, mass of the Milky Way? Yeah. So uh, at that mass, it's... Um, for galaxies in the local universe, galaxies of that mass would still be spiral galaxies, just relatively small spiral galaxies. Kind of like M33 in the local group, um, which is like the third largest galaxy in the local group after Andromeda and the Milky Way, which are the two really big galaxies. Or it's kind of interesting that uh, astronomers are finding something about the size of a spiral galaxy beyond the epoch of reionization. It's interesting in, in that it, it seems like a relatively large object. Uh, based on a lot of models of uh, the formation of the universe, you should form really, really small things first, uh, kind of like uh, dwarf galaxies, and then you would form uh, your larger spiral galaxies later, and then your giant ellipticals after that. Oh, so I guess if they've seen a spiral galaxy from that far in the past... And I suppose that really is quite a big thing as to sort of the indication of structure formation. If, if it is a spiral galaxy, I suppose, but uh, I suppose you can't tell well, that it is from this distance. Well, they have, that it's an indistinct object. They have an indication of what the mass is for the object, which uh, even if it isn't a spiral galaxy per se, it's still something about the size of a small spiral galaxy, which says something about how quickly you can form galaxies of that size. How did they measure the... Redshift to this object. 
Uh, well, I think they use two different ways. They, they use the angular separation of the images caused by the lensing and also photometrically by um, the redness of the object. So they just looked at and saw that it was extremely red and therefore very far away. It must be extremely red-shifted. <laughs> so my odds and ends for today is kind of a strange thing, which I guess is sort of normal for me. It's an auction of a Hasselblad 500C camera which potentially flew on two of the Mercury missions. Now, th this is actually a rather complicated story. It actually goes into uh, just some interesting points about the early space mission. So, uh, contrary to what you would think, uh, NASA did not think to give their astronauts cameras when they went up into space. They just had the astronauts apparently sit in their seats and look at what was happening outside. John Glenn was actually the first person to bring a handheld camera into space, which he bought at a local drugstore. Now, this camera up for auction was bought at another local store by Wally Shira, who flew on the Mercury Atlas 8 mission. He selected this camera after talking to uh, multiple photographers who worked with various magazines at the time, I think including uh, Life magazine, which was really big in the 50s and 60s. And then um, after he bought this, he uh, stripped off a uh, uh, outer leather uh, covering and then painted it black so that it wouldn't produce so many reflections, and then took it up into space with him. Then apparently after that, um, Gordon Cooper, who flew on the sixth flight, also had a Hasselblad 500C camera. Now, this is where the story gets a little murky. There are indications that he ended up with this camera that Wally Shira uh, took on his flight, but it's not clear that Cooper brought the same camera on his flight. So it's possible that the astronauts brought two different versions of the same model camera on their flights, and somehow both models ended up with Cooper. Um, or it's possible that somehow uh, things got changed between the two cameras, such as the outer markings. The auction houses who were uh, selling uh, this camera have uh, spent uh, a lot of time uh, looking at historical photographs and verifying that they can match up uh, various uh, markings on the outside of the camera with um, one of the cameras that one of the astronauts brought into space. So it's like actually something of quite a bit of debate as to uh, the veracity of these various claims. In any case, we do know that like, um, uh, well, in the case of this camera being auctioned, that it is something that Wally Shira, it does match up with the camera that Wally Shira took into space. It's not clear if Cooper brought this into space as well, or if he brought a different camera, and then someone somehow ended up with Shira's camera as well. Where is the camera being auctioned? The camera is being auctioned in Boston by RR Auction of Massachusetts. And also, they have put a, uh, a guide price. <laughs> a conservative. They have put a conservative estimate of fifty thousand to a hundred thousand U.S. dollars no. on it. 
Although they're kind of hopeful that will be much more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing to think that um, no one thought to bring a camera into space before Wally Schiff. Well, I, before John Glenn. <laughs> oh, John Glenn. <laughs> so, yeah, the cosmonauts didn't think about, like, bringing a camera up with them. Maybe they had cameras on the exterior or other fixed cameras. John Glenn was the first with the first handheld camera. Now it's uh, you have astronauts doing Twitter feeds, oh, and yes. you get um, Reed Wiseman tweeting every day pictures from the ISS, <laughs> um, yeah. selfies. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I guess I would too if I was up there. Yeah, astro selfies. Excuse <laughs> me in space. Do they? Is it possible to see the pi- the pictures that were from the camera anywhere? Are they oh, that that... publicly available or? That is an excellent question, and I'm not certain about that. Um, although I can say that a lot of older photos from older NASA missions are online on the NASA websites. They take archiving their uh, photography very seriously, and they also uh, want to distribute this photography to the general public. Um, even though it's um, some of the pictures are very grainy or not that good-looking, in particular, some of the science pictures are relatively obsolete. Some of the other uh, photos are very important historically, particularly photos of like uh, the earlier uh, manned missions and unmanned missions, for that matter. And uh, just allowing the world to benefit from uh, those photos is uh, one of NASA's major goals. So is it nice to see the progression of how far come over the years with all the photography? I've actually done this with, uh, in terms of astrophotography in particular. Uh, if you go back to, uh, books from, uh, the 80s or 70s or 60s, for example, some of, uh, the photos of, uh, things like galaxies and nebulae, uh, kind of look pathetic compared to, uh, some of the things that, uh, you can just find using, uh, Google or Bing. Mm-hmm. Makes you wonder what it'll be like in the future. <laughs> I can't imagine. These images look pathetic. <laughs> There'll be someone. And now, after that discussion, a person whose veracity we trust. Here's Ian Morrison with this month's night sky. The night sky for November 2014. Well, as it gets an hour or so after sunset, the skies beautifully dark and hopefully sometimes clear. The square of Pegasus is over in the south, four stars making up the square of the winged horse. That is upside down, and some stars to its lower right form, in fact, the head and the mane. Just off the edge of perhaps the head of the horse is a nice globular cluster called M15, which one might pick up with a reasonable pair of binoculars on a dark night or a telescope. And starting at the top left-hand side of the square, a star called Alpha Rats, which actually is Alpha Andromedae, is a nice way of finding M31, the great galaxy in Andromeda. And on the night sky page, I have a chart to show you how to do that. Above, and almost overhead in fact, is the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia. And in fact, that gives you another way of finding Andromeda. The upper right stars, the three brighter ones, in fact, form a little V, 
And if you follow that V downwards, that will also bring you to where Andromeda is. To the lower left of Pegasus is the constellation of Pisces. To be honest, none of the stars there are very bright. It's not really picked up terribly well. And over to the left again, we have Aries, the ram. But what will be obvious as the evening draws on is the lovely region around Orion and Taurus. Over towards the east in the south, by around midnight, you'll see that lovely little open cluster of stars called the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters. Down to its lower left is another cluster called the Hyades. There's one very red-orange star, much brighter than the other stars. It's actually Aldebaran. It's nothing to do with the cluster at all. It just happens to lie in the same direction, about half the way away. To its lower left, we have, of course, Iran the Hunter. And that's actually looking beautiful in the early hours of the morning now, when it's risen and somewhat towards the south. It has three stars in a line forming its belt, and they point up to the right towards Aldebaran and to the brightest star we see in the northern heavens, Sirius. The lower right, as we look at it, of Orion, at the lower right, is the star Rigel, a blue giant. And to the upper left is a red giant star, Betelgeuse. It's very large. It's about the size in diameter of the orbit of Jupiter. And that's one star that sometime in the future, we don't know when, is going to explode and become a supernova. Coming down from Cassiopeia high overhead, along, in fact, the plain of the Milky Way, and if it's really dark, you might spot that, you come to Perseus. Two nice things in Perseus. First of all, between Cassiopeia and Murfak is the double cluster, two lovely open clusters close together, a lovely sight in a small telescope. A star coming down, in fact, towards Aries is called Algol, sometimes called the Demon Star, because every so often it winks. It's actually an orbiting double star, one star going round the other, and sometimes the light of the brighter star is occulted by the less bright, and the brightness drops quite a significant amount. Carrying on beyond Perseus is a bright yellow star. It's called Capella, and it's in the constellation of Auriga. Again, that's along the plain of Milky Way, which is where we find these open clusters. And there are three very prominent open clusters in Auriga, starting from the Capella end, shall we say, is M38, then M36, and finally M37. So it's a very rich part of the Milky Way to look at. And carrying down, just rising in the east, is the constellation of Germany, with its two bright stars, Castor and Pollux. And just at the lower right leg, or the foot, shall we say, of Castor, one of the heavenly twins, is another nice open cluster called M35. So quite a lot to look at in the heavens this month. Well, what about the planets? Jupiter is beginning its apparition, really. Shining at magnitude minus 2.1, it's now rising at about 11.30 as November begins. It's around 10 degrees up and to the right of the star Regulus in Leo the Lion. Its motion eastwards across the sky is slowing. By the end of the month, it rises well over an hour earlier, at about 9.40 UT. 
and with a slight increase in magnitude to minus 2.3. It's due south and so highest in the sky at an elevation of 53 degrees, which isn't bad, at around 0530 UT, some two hours before sunrise. I saw it absolutely beautifully in the morning sky, the pre-dawn sky, the other morning. I could see the four little moons of Jupiter with my telescope. The size of Jupiter's disk is increasing slightly. It goes from 37 to 39 arc seconds this month. So early risers, or late stayers, uppers, should be able to spot the equatorial bands in the atmosphere and the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. If the timing is right, you may also see the great red spot, which appears to be getting somewhat smaller at the present time, which is interesting. Well, quickly to Saturn. Uh, this month, Saturn actually passes behind the Sun on the 18th of November, so really is not going to be visible to us for virtually the whole month. It might just be visible at the very end of the month, rising about one hour before the Sun on the 30th. But best to wait a while. It will become a pre-dawn object as time goes by. Now, Mercury is having a very favourable apparition in the pre-dawn skies, partly the latter part of October, and now, in fact, the best on the very 1st of November, when it reaches what is called greatest elongation west of the Sun. It lies some 18 degrees in angle away. With a magnitude of minus 0.5, which actually is quite bright, it'll be some 15 degrees above the horizon at sunrise. It will have an angular size of about 7 arc seconds and a phase of about 50%. So it's sort of half illuminated. You'll need a good low horizon in the east-southeast to spot it. But in fact, when you do, you should be able to see it with your unaided eye. But please do not try and observe it once the sun has risen. Mercury then, of course, begins to drop back towards the horizon as it nears the sun, its size dropping to about five arc seconds by the 15th as it goes towards the end of this rather nice apparition. Mars has been around for a very long time. It's now moving eastwards relative to the stars in the constellation of Sagittarius and can be seen very low in the southwest just after sunset. It's dimming from magnitude plus 0.9 to plus 1, and its angular size is falling from 5.5 to 5.2 arc seconds. So you're not going to see any detail on the surface, just this sort of salmon pink colour. Sagittarius is full of wonderful objects, and so as Mars passes through the constellation, it passes quite close to several Messier objects. It passes the globular cluster M28 on the 2nd, M22 on the 6th, and is moving towards M75 by the end of the month. And finally, Venus. Well, Venus passed behind the Sun on the 26th of October, so we will really have to wait until next month when it will become an evening object. I suspect it might just be visible after sunset during the last week of the month. What about some highlights? Quite a few this month, actually. November the 1st to the 8th, Mercury is in fact lying above Spica in Virgo. On the 1st, it's just 5 degrees above, a little to the left of Spica. And again, as I've said, you need a good low horizon in the east-southeast and possibly the use of binoculars to spot it. 
Interestingly, on November the 4th, between about 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock UT, the moon skims just above the planet Uranus. At 5 o'clock, Uranus is just two arc minutes, and that's not much, and that varies a bit across the UK, below the moon's limb. It's then twilight, so I suspect it would be hard to spot, unless perhaps you've got a telescope which you've actually locked on to the position of Uranus. But over the next 45 minutes, as darkness foils, it should become easier to spot. By 5.30, the separation will have increased to 6 arc minutes, and by 6 o'clock, 19 arc minutes. The disk, at 3.3 arc seconds across, is tiny, but one should be able to spot its rather lovely turquoise colour. On November the 14th, an hour before sunrise, Jupiter is quite close to a third quarter moon. On the same day, one hour after sunset, Mars will be seen just above the teapot of Sagittarius. Again, little charts are shown on the night sky page. And then on the mornings of the 17th and 18th, after midnight, so that is the early morning of the 17th and 18th, the Earth passes close to the trails of cometary debris from Comet Temple Tuttle, and these produce the annual Leonid meteor shower. The good news is that this year, the meteor shower occurs near the time of new moon, so its light will not hinder our view. But the less good news is that the meteor shower is much weaker than around the time of the millennium, and perhaps only a dozen meteors might be spotted per hour. And the best time to observe them will be after midnight, as our hemisphere is then facing the stream of cometary debris. As the name implies, the radiant of the shower, which is where the meteors appear to radiate from, lies within the head or sickle of the constellation Leo the Lion. On November the 25th and 26th, an hour after sunset, Mars can be seen close to a thin crescent moon. As I've said, it's lying up to the left of the teapot in Sagittarius. On the 25th, it'll be about 10 degrees to the left of a very thin, three-day-old crescent moon, whilst on the 26th, a day later, it will lie some seven degrees below a fuller crescent moon. So quite a lot to look at this month. Good hunting. Kia ora, and welcome to the November Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. Mars continues to hold its position in our western evening sky this month, moving through the constellation of Sagittarius as the stars slip westwards behind it. It is now the only planet in our evening sky, and will set after around midnight. As we continue on our inside orbit, Mars is moving further and further away from us, and will appear as just a tiny red dot in a small telescope this month. At the end of the month, Mars is joined briefly by Venus, making a slow rise above the southwestern horizon. Venus will set just 50 minutes after the Sun at the end of November, but it's such a bright object that it may be briefly visible, low down in the evening twilight sky. The planet will gradually set later and later after the Sun as we move through the end of 2014 and the first half of next year, to become a spectacular evening object by mid-2015. In contrast, bright Jupiter is rising earlier and earlier in our morning skies, by around 3am towards the beginning of the month and by 1am at the end. Look out for Jupiter's four largest moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto, which can be seen with binoculars moving from side to side as they orbit the planet. 
As Scorpius or Temato Amawi sets in the west, his arch enemy and our summer constellation Orion rises towards the east along with Taurus and Canis Major. The bright star Antares, which marks the heart of the scorpion, is also known as Rehua Tamari. It represents one of the four po or pillars that hold Ranganui, the sky father, up in the sky. It sits just above the southwestern horizon at around 11pm at the beginning of the month. These four po form the basis of a celestial compass, a map of the night sky, that was used to navigate the vast oceans of our planet and bring our ancestors to Aotearoa, New Zealand. The other three po are marked by Matariki, the Pleiades, Tohu, the Belt of Orion, and Takarua, or Sirius, which line up along the eastern horizon. Matariki supports one of Rangi's shoulders and marks the rising point of the sun at the winter solstice. Takarua, or Sirius, supports the other shoulder and is the closest bright star to the sun's rising point at the summer solstice. These two stars represent the extent of the sun's movement throughout the year. In between and rising directly east is Totoru, or the belt of Orion, marking the rising point of the sun at the time of the equinox. Stretching from Scorpius around to Orion, it's Tewaka or Tamaverity, or Tamaverity's canoe, which lines up along the horizon in our evening sky. The front of the canoe is represented by the tail of Scorpius, or Tewaka or Marirangi, while Totoru marks the stern. The southern cross is the anchor Tepunga, and the pointers are the anchor line Tetora. The key seasonal markers of Takarua, Sirius, and Rehua Antares are on either side. One story tells of Tamarerity sailing across the sky in his waka with all the stars in kete or baskets. He places the key seasonal and navigational stars in their correct positions in the sky, but finds he has lots of smaller stars left over. So he capsizes his waka, spilling all the smaller stars into the sky, forming Te Ikaroa, or the Milky Way. The sky we see in the mid-evening in October-November each year is in fact the same sky we see just before sunrise around June, the time we celebrate Matariki or Maori New Year. It is said that the bright star Canopus, or Atutahi, the Araki, or High Chief of the Heavens, pulls up the anchor at the start of the year, beginning the waka in motion. During the year, you can track the progress of Tamarati's waka as it moves across the sky, one day at a time. Canopus is the second brightest star in the nighttime sky, with a magnitude of minus 0.7, and the brightest in the southern constellation of Carina. It is a white F-type supergiant with a mass around 10 times that of our sun. It can be seen midway up the southeastern evening sky this month. A little higher and further towards the south, you may be able to spot two small fuzzy patches of light, easily seen with the naked eye on a dark moonless night. These are the large and small Magellanic clouds, two small irregular dwarf galaxies that neighbour our own. Whilst these galaxies are much smaller than the Milky Way, they still contain billions of stars. The Large Magellanic Cloud, or LMC, is the lower of the two and is located 160,000 light-years away. Through binoculars or a small telescope, you may be able to spot a number of young star clusters, visible as small patches of light. The LMC contains one of the largest and brightest star formation regions known, called the Tarantula Nebula, or 30 Doradus. Spanning around 600 light-years across and covering 13 arc minutes in the sky, the Tarantula Nebula contains over 800,000 stars and protostars, and is the most active starburst region identified within our own local group of galaxies. If it were placed at the same distance as the Orion Nebula, it would be so bright that it would cast a shadow here on Earth. The star formation activity within the Tarantula Nebula began a few tens of millions of years ago, and some of the largest and brightest stars born within this region have already reached the ends of their short lives. 
In February 1987, supernova SN 1987A was discovered in the outskirts of the Tarantula Nebula by astronomers at Las Campanas Observatory in Chile and independently by prolific amateur astronomer Albert Jones here in New Zealand. This supernova was the closest since the invention of the telescope just over 400 years ago and provided an unique opportunity for astronomers to study such an event in unprecedented detail. Reaching a peak magnitude of around 3, supernova 1987A was easily bright enough to spot with the naked eye. Smaller and more distant than the LMC at around 200,000 light-years is the Small Magellanic Cloud, or SMC. To the top right of this galaxy, you may spot a faint fuzzy star. This object is not actually associated with the SMC, but is a beautiful globular cluster located just a tenth of the distance away on the outskirts of our own galaxy. At magnitude 4.9, it is the second brightest globular cluster in the sky after Omega Centauri and can be easily seen with the naked eye. With binoculars or a small telescope, it is a wonderful sight, revealing a densely packed central core whilst a larger telescope will start to resolve some of its millions of ancient stars. Look out for the Leonid meteor shower, which peaks around the 17th of the month, when the Earth passes through the trail of dust and debris left behind by the comet Temple Tuttle. Whilst normally a reliable but fairly quiet meteor shower, observers have noticed that roughly every 33 years, the number of meteors observed during the shower show a marked increase as the Earth passes through the denser parts of the cometary debris trail. Whilst the 2014 shower is not expected to reach these high levels, it does occur around the time of a waning crescent moon, making viewing conditions much better than 2013. The radiant of the shower, from which the meteors appear to originate, is located in the constellation of Leo, which rises only a couple of hours before the sun in our morning sky. The best time to observe the Leonids is about three hours before sunrise on the mornings around the peak. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Ian. And now on to the feedback. So we don't have any email, Facebook, or Twitter today, but we do have a postcard. Hannah? We've got this lovely postcard from Niagara Falls from Alexander Hobson. Greetings from Great White North. Love the show and thought I'd send a card from one of the wonders of Canada. All the best. Jod on, Alexander W. Hobson. Thanks, Alexander. It's always nice to get post. Yes. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Or on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. Or Facebook, facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Thanks to Professor Jim Drake for the interview. The editors were Mark Perver, Monique Henson, and Ben Shaw. The producer was Sally Cooper. Until next time, jod on! on.